Hello, everybody. Welcome to the fifth episode of Students Talk Security. Uh, I am Griffin Cannon, he, a senior studying political science with the International Security Program. I'm here with General Frank Taylor, uh, an executive fellow with our global, uh, global policy initiative here at the Keough School. Uh, he is a retired U.S. Air Force officer as well as a government official, having served many, many prestigious positions uh, over the course of his long career. Uh, we're here to talk about a number of things, but uh, specifically the role of the state, non-state actors, uh, businesses, other entities uh, moving forward into the future. So, General Taylor, to begin, um, I'd like, if you wouldn't mind, uh, would you talk a little bit about your own background? Certainly. I graduated Notre Dame in 1970 and joined the Air Force, spent 31 years in the Air Force doing investigations, security, counterintelligence, and counterterrorism. Then I went to the State Department. I was U.S. Ambassador for Counterterrorism on 9-11. Uh, then I headed um, the Bureau of Diplomatic Security uh, for two and a half years. Left there, went to GE for eight and a half years as their first Chief Security Officer, and then uh, joined the Department of Homeland Security as the Undersecretary for Intelligence. Then I retired. Sort of. I came to Notre Dame. Well, we're happy to have you here. Well, thank you. It's good to be back. Um, so, I'm wondering if we can start, uh, just because I find this fascinating, the, the role of private business uh, in security affairs, internet, uh, global affairs as we term it at the school. Well, I think there are many different aspects that uh, private business plays. First, if you look in the United States, 85% uh, of the critical infrastructure, that is infrastructure that's critical to the well-being of our country, uh, moving power and energy and water is in private hands. And that is a big change from uh, the 40s and 50s when a lot of that was under government control. So there's a huge impact uh, within uh, the homeland of uh, private sector actors having an impact on how they sustain uh, our way of life as Americans. Now, if you look more broadly, you know, take a company like GE. GE is 300,000 people in 120 different countries. It's affecting the economies of those countries. In certain cases, it's involved in the uh, power generations, involved in health care, health care policy in those countries. And so uh, one used to think of the private sector as out making money and government doing other things, well, there's a, a much closer integration between uh, global corporations and the health and safety and security of, uh, of societies that uh, they're in or that they're operating in. Uh, going back, you talked about uh, the critical infrastructure challenge, uh, but also, well, of course, the expanding role of these, these organizations. Do you think as the United States, uh, we have an importantly different relationship with these organizations than, say, other major nation states. Do you think the way our country works alters that in a meaningful way? Well, you know, I, I think all countries across the world find much of their critical infrastructure in the, in the hands of the private sector. Perhaps um, the only one I can think of is maybe Russia. Uh, or China, but increasingly in those countries, the investments that are being made by business are in areas where um, uh, the government is not, the government may have be a partner, but it's not in control. So what I've learned is that 
the government needs to understand that national security and business security go hand in hand. One that uh, if you're going to do national security, you have to help protect business that is running those things that are critical to the security and well-being of the country. And that's increasingly true across the world uh, for many reasons. That has, it's just the way things have evolved as we've globalized. And now you've got a company like GE, let's say, running power generation in Nigeria. The Nigerian government has to be able to work very closely with GE around how that's managed and the security and the su sustainability of those efforts. Huh. I wonder, uh, going back on that point, um, I wonder how we think of uh, large, large corporations like this. Uh, certainly there's a partnership between them and, them and any nation they're in. Uh, but as organizations, do we think of them as uh, having certain certain drives, certain interests? Uh, of course they would. Well, of course. Uh, their first interest is yeah. to make money for their shareholders and yeah. uh, to open markets, to create opportunities for trade for their products that they may build here or build elsewhere around the world. But that, isn't, that doesn't happen in a vacuum. Uh, and as corporations come into countries around the world, they want to work with the government to make sure, one, that they get the right kind of access to uh, resources and, you know, borders aren't uh, uh, keeping them away from getting their product in or their, the product that's manufactured, they're out and that sort of thing. So. There's a very close partnership that has to go with government. And, you know, I, I, I really believe that uh, despite what you hear in our country sometimes about, you know, America for America, we are so integrated globally uh, as an economy that it's very difficult to separate one country's uh, well-being from the rest of the world. The rest of the world plays a huge role in uh, what happens here and what happens in other places. Do you think that fact, you know, the, of course the globalization, the interconnectedness of our societies, uh, do you think that's recognized by, by people, uh, the vast majority of people in those societies? No, because it's not yeah. a part of their daily existence. Uh, you ask someone, well, where did this product you just bought at Walmart comes from? They can't tell you. Yeah. Uh, so they don't, they don't see that reality every day. And I don't know that it's necessarily necessary for them to see that reality every day. But as business people, as security people, as government officials, we understand and recognize that it's global relationships that are key to the well-being of our, our country and our business and our economy uh, going forward. And that's why I worry a little bit about these trade wars that we're seeing uh, pop up as to whether or not that's really in the long-term best interests of our country. Yeah. This might be opening a totally other box of worms, sure. right? Totally separate box of worms. Uh, but it would seem that that elite understanding of, uh, perhaps it's dangerous even to use the term elite, but that understanding among security experts, among uh, business experts, that this is central, that division there, uh, it seems like there's 
some tension, right? And it seems like that's what we've seen. Well, I think there is in. tension, uh, but not in the professional core. I think the mm -hmm. people who have worked this for many years, you know, since 9-11, we have worked very hard to build relationships with countries across the globe. We cannot secure America without information from countries around the world about um, individuals who could threaten those countries and in the long term threaten our country. There's an integration that has uh, happened uh, in the course of the last 17 years that is incredible. And that integration doesn't stop at our border. Uh, tell me what, how high you're going to build a wall and I'll build a ladder that's going to be higher. And as you look at the security issues that impact our country, you know, it's the issues of ideas. Uh, every terrorist attack since, nine, uh, since uh, the underwear bomber in, in 2009, Christmas 2009, has come from inside the country, not outside the country. And it's radicalization of individuals over the internet. That's how they make their connection. Uh, it's not, you know, kind of coming across the border and that sort of thing. So, and because of that, the integration that we must have with our partners across the globe become extraordinarily important. Um, so, turning as we have to terrorism, um, I wonder if the uh, if the individual, the small organization, uh, ideologically motivated, if that. Um, if those groups, if those individuals are more threatening tomorrow than they were yesterday in terms of what they have access to, in terms of what they can do? I don't know that I would say they're more threatening. I, I, mm -hmm. I think in many cases the, the threat of terrorism is the, the threat, the fear of terrorism as opposed to the actual execution of uh, terrorist attacks. And, you know, Paris and Belgium uh, kind of proved that you know, two or three guys uh, with dedicated can really disrupt a city and cause great fear in a city. Uh, but I don't know that they're any more capable. I think what's uh, probably more concerned is that now they're individuals. Now they're not large groups. There are groups of three or four individuals who have banded together and do this over the internet and decide they're going to uh, take up uh, the cause of terrorism. And you don't see them. Uh, the FBI in our country has announced that they have more than 1,000 uh, individuals under investigation for counterterrorism. All those are Americans, people living in America who have uh, developed thinking that says they might conduct a terrorist attack. So I think it's that aspect of it, not another Al-Qaeda or another ISIS-type uh, organization. I think we've learned our lesson in how we have to take those organizations on and defeat them. So how do we deal with these individuals, right? It seems like... It's intelligence. Okay. Yeah. It's um, every one of these people may be talking to someone who's a bad guy. And we need intelligence systems that allow us when those... And I, you know, it's very important that we protect privacy, civil rights, and civil liberties. But we also need to have the capacity, when necessary, to, to hear bad people saying they're going to do bad things. And that's where the partnership comes in with our foreign partners. 
It's where the partnership comes in with our intelligence agencies in our own country to make sure that that information flows. Um, and it flows to the right level within the organization that should someone be a threat to our society or to the society of one of our allies, that we get that information into their hands so that they can do something to interdict it. This may be getting a little, uh, little overly specific, but if we're not dealing with large organizations, if we're not dealing with, uh, with cells that we can kind of trace, uh, how are we finding individuals that we're really concerned about? How do we, what are the indicators that say, this person may become a lone wolf? Well, I don't know that there are specific indicators except uh, because, you know, a lot of it happens in the brain of the individual that uh, is, uh, is radicalizing. But I'm not aware of any case of someone radicalizing where someone else didn't know or see a change in behavior. And what we ask people to do is, is if you see something, say something. Let us know when you see people um, um, conducting, their, conducting themselves in ways that they haven't uh, in the past. It's almost like suicide prevention, you know? Uh, they become uh, detached from friends, they give things away. These are all signs that something is happening that may require not necessarily law enforcement intervention, but maybe medical intervention. But families and girlfriends and boyfriends, uh, schoolmates, uh, all see behavioral change. And what we're asking people to do is when you see those behavioral changes and you're concerned, about why that's happening, get it into the hands of professionals so that it can be evaluated. So clearly this is, uh, this is an area that we've done a lot of work on. In this country, we have a lot of capacity to do that. Mm -hmm. um, is this something, it seems that there are a lot of countries out there that don't have that sort of capacity. Well, we're working very hard to teach other countries how to do this. And mm -hmm. Uh, not to develop a police state, but how yeah. do you develop a security regimen that protects privacy, civil rights, civil liberties, and the uh, constitutional protections of the societies these folks come from, but also has the connections to get the necessary information to make analytical judgments about who may or who may not be a threat to individual societies or to more globally to, to travel to conduct uh, terrorist activities. And one of the challenges, if you think about it, uh, with the, uh, before Turkey really got serious on interdicting uh, ISIS fighters, they were flowing through Turkey like who would have thought it? And so, and it took the Istanbul attack in Turkey for the Turks to realize that you know they can't sit as an island allowing this sort of thing to occur into Syria without having implications in their own society. So people, societies, countries need to understand that this is a global partnership. These people uh, do not care about national sovereignty. All they care about is uh, conducting their terrorist operations and to do so to intimidate people to gain power and that sort of thing. And, that if we don't join together as a global world of nations, all of us are, are threatened by uh, that behavior. And <clears throat> briefly, just wrapping up this portion, um, do you think that that organization uh, that 
yeah, partnership, right, will continue to continue to grow, sustain itself, or do you see any any sort of tension in there that might? Well, I, I think there's always the possibility of someone deciding it's not a good idea to cooperate, yeah. and uh, or for whatever reason gets upset with one country or another and decides to stop that cooperation. But I, I think in general, law enforcement professionals, intelligence professionals understand what's required in order to protect their societies and their citizens and uh, find that kind of global cooperation to be uh, kind of the way it moves forward. I, I used to talk about the brotherhood, maybe now sisterhood of the badge. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's global law enforcement, and global law enforcement understands that uh, law um, enforcement in one country can be affected by law enforcement in other countries, and that's why you have global uh, police organizations like the International Association of Chiefs of Police, where police from all over the world come together to talk about uh, issues and challenges and how um, uh, what kind of tactics can be used to, you know, be successful in taking down gangs or terrorists mm -hmm. or, you know, bank thieves, internet thieves, whatever. Yeah. These, these problems know no border is, is the point I'm trying to make, and law enforcement and intelligence professionals know that. Fair enough. Um, if you don't mind uh, sure. moving on to, to nation-state interaction, mm -hmm. it seems like we've heard heard about a new model of great power relations. We've heard about a return to multipolarity. It feels like uh, something's afoot in the, in the international community. And maybe we're getting into a new, new era or perhaps an old era that we haven't seen for a while. You know, it's hard to say um, kind of what this new era will be. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, President Trump has trumpeted um, the idea of America first and pulling away from some of the things that we have supported across the world since World War II in terms of uh, global order uh, and building that global order, uh, pulling away from the UN. I think that from my own part, I'm not political in stating this, but I do think it empowers Russia and perhaps even China uh, to uh, to challenge us uh, going forward, and I think that makes for a potential um, conflict uh, going forward. So I I don't know what the new order is going to be because I don't know the consequence of uh, what President Trump has decided is going to be you know sort of fortress America. I don't believe you can build enough military capability to uh, reach other places around the world without help from our neighbors and friends. Um, we need our European partners, we need our Asian partners, we need our Central and South American partners in order to protect ourselves. So I'm not sure what the outcome will be, but I do know that since this administration has come in, there's been a significant change and how it has approached the whole notion of international relations and the role of America as a leader in international relations. So it seems uh, like President Trump has found a certain constituency for this, this worldview within the United mm -hmm. States. Um, I don't think it's just in the United States. I think yeah. that worldview is manifest in Brexit, uh, the voting in Poland, um, so I, I think there are people who are wanting to not 
be a part of a global compact, uh, and that is demonstrating itself in several countries. The, I think the leading uh, candidate in the Brazil election is a very uh, right-of-center Brazilian nationalist. So I, I don't think it's just here, uh, but I think the way in which we operate gives people with those kinds of thoughts uh, encouragement that it can happen there. What, uh, what does the world look like, hypothetically, uh, if that is the direction that we move towards? If See, I don't think that that's going to work in the long yeah. term. I, I really, as I mentioned when we first started, you know, we are globally connected. And yeah. our economies are globally co co uh, connected. And so one can say, I'm going to opt out of this political uh, process or that political process. Look at what's been happening with uh, the UK and Brexit. You know, it's, uh, I just saw an article today in the Wall Street Journal that they're very close on a couple of issues in terms of the uh, um, border with, uh, between Northern Ireland and uh, the Republic of Ireland and in terms of how goods will move uh, back and forth. Europe, I mean, England may want to be out of the EU for all the wrong reasons, but it will be connected to the EU because it's, uh, it's a part of the European continent. That's not going to change. How that relationship evolves will really be the question of you know, how, what the Brexit negotiations turn out to be. So you're saying, regardless of the the political uh, decisions in various states, the, the economic reality remains the same? That's my view. And yeah. uh, I think it's manifested uh, both here in our country and uh, as you, uh, the Trump administration has essentially renamed but not changed NAFTA uh, because of the, the what's happened between the three economies. Uh, and the linkage between those economies. So uh, you, you can call it, you know, call it anything you want to call it, but NAFTA is critical to the, uh, well, I'm sorry, it's U.S., Mexico, Canada is critical to the economic prosperity of our region. And as I read the, the new agreement, it's fundamentally the same with a couple of concessions from Canada for milk and auto parts. So it seems the, the economic order remains, but it, let's say there, uh, that we do regain our, our affection for the, the international order. Uh, how does rebuilding the damage that has been done, how does that work? What does well, that look I think like? people are looking for American leadership. I, I, don't, I, I think the disappointment is that America has not led in ways that it's led in the past. So I think an administration that asserts American leadership, uh, asserts the primacy of human rights and all the things that we've fought for for so long, climate change and those th uh, things that impact the global order, uh, I think there'll be people rallying to, uh, to be a part of it. Um, I fear that um, in the absence of asserting that leadership in Europe and in Asia and in Central and South America that another power, Russia or China, uh, will get um, 
more leveraged than they should in terms of, you know, the evolution of the international power structure. And look, I, I don't believe that there's only going to be one superpower. China is going to be a superpower. The question is, will China be a superpower that threatens America and our way of life, or will it be a, a part of a global system, but where it, uh, within its own sphere of influence, exercises its influence, uh, but not to the detriment of ours? Sorry, I, I, you've left me with a lot to think about here. Um, I suppose... The issue between yeah. us and China is not whether China builds a blue water navy or an army that's expeditionary, although it doesn't need one. Maybe a blue water navy, navy given its maritime uh, uh, um, expanse, but whether the competition will be military military competition or economic competition. You know, everything I read says China will have the largest economy in the world by 2040. What does that mean in terms of the relationship between the U.S. and, and China? Is there going to be a partnership uh, going forward and, you know, bringing both countries along? Or is there going to be economic competition that's going to result in potential military conflict? Hard to say. So it seems like the uh, the order that we've built has, has worked very well for China in its in its growth, but China uh, wouldn't agree with you. Oh, okay. Well, uh, <laughs> I, I think China would say you know they want to be recognized as a world power, and that they yeah. weren't uh, as they you know as Mao and uh, those folks were coming along. Uh, so I think the Chinese do want to change the relationship. But whether that becomes a political competition or a military competition, I think is yet to be seen. Hmm. So you can see a world where uh, America reasserts leadership in the world, and we. I think we have to. Okay. Uh, because I think where else would it come from? Um, would it come from a totalitarian state in China? Uh, no, I don't believe so. Would it come from Russia? Uh, totalitarian state in Europe. Uh, you know, America, Colin Powell used to say, you know, we fought wars across this land, but never to uh, take land away from people. It is to create opportunities for people uh, to manifest their destiny. And I, I think that's still part and parcel of our core values of how we see ourselves uh, interacting with the world, and uh, I think that's a very important part of uh, the future of our uh, of our nation and in our world. Well, that idea that an American uh, an American led order is probably one of the most be benevolent possible. Well, I, I don't know that it's an American led, but the ideals mm -hmm. that we pursue uh, that come out of the UN that come out of the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights and all these other sorts of things, I think are principles that uh, countries around the world have to begin to embrace so that they don't become uh, a threat to their own people, uh, Venezuela, or a threat to their neighbors. Uh, and I think those are enduring principles that need to be sustained in, uh, in, in the world that we're we're 
we're moving into that's increasingly small. Yeah. It's no longer, you know, seven days to get to Europe on a boat. You can be on the other side of the world in 24 hours. And so in that environment, how people think about interaction becomes, I think, extraordinarily important. So how do we reconcile this, uh, this system with what seems to be a nation that does not share those values? I'm thinking about China. Uh, that does not necessarily share those values, those modes of thinking. Um, yet has substantial, uh, or will have substantial power in that world. Um, well, you continue the dialogue across the world. You, you build TPP, you uh, demonstrate leadership in trade policy and uh, diplomatic policy and that sort of thing. You continue to invest in foreign aid. Uh, you know, the things that China is doing in Africa need to be um, matched by our own government and not pulling back foreign aid uh, and only giving foreign aid to people who think like we do. Uh, it just doesn't match the reality of the competition that happens between uh, countries like China. And I also believe China's approach to this, uh, you know, they'll come in, they'll bring the Chinese nationals to do the project and they'll do the project behind a fence. and. Uh, that's not how we do foreign aid, and mm -hmm. I, I think that that becomes a, an alternative for countries. But you got to continue to invest, and when you fail to invest in those sorts of institutions and using those sorts of power, I think you um, you lose influence. And uh, you know, it's not just the idea ideas that we have, but the fact that those ideas are manifest in what we do every day. The fact that food aid has a big USA emblem on it as it comes into countries in disaster that we, you know, we do the kinds of things that we believe are right uh, to, to help the world and those that are less fortunate than us. Uh, you know, I think of Ebola. Without the help of the United States of America, Liberia would have been decimated by Ebola. But that's what we do. That's who we are, and I, I hope we never lose that. Huh. Um, so you mentioned uh, disasters briefly there, and I'll mm -hmm. use that transition. Um, it seems as if uh, moving into the moving into the middle of the twenty first century, uh, climate change will cease to be an issue of you know, climate and more of one of disasters, of migration, of very concrete it. effects. Yes. Yeah. So, what does that, what does that do to the international uh, international arena? What does that do to how we engage with the world? Does that change anything? Basically, well, first or? one has to recognize the science uh, of uh, of climate climate change, and we just had the UN report released. It's not political. It's not done just because you know people hate. Uh, uh, oil companies or coal companies, it's done because that's the science tells us what's going on. The polar cap is melting, you know, New York is below sea level, and I don't know the exact um, numbers that are coming out of that. So first is recognizing uh, that um, climate change is real, that we're seeing the effects of climate change and forest fires and more uh, severe hurricanes and all those sorts of things. And to begin the process of beginning to build 
uh, to withstand what we know is coming. I, there was a 60 Minutes piece um, on uh, a couple weeks ago about um, the guy that architected the um, uh, protection of Rotterdam, uh, the Dutch. You know, they haven't had a flood uh, a title for, for years. But his point was we invested in um, understanding, you know, kind of what the, the natural flows of water and things are and so that we can prevent it from, from happening because uh, Holland is below sea level. Uh, we don't do that in this country. Uh, and the mayor of Hoboken, um, New Jersey, had uh, um, hired this guy to do the um, to do their recovery because she says we can't just go back to normal and five years from now have the same thing happen. So part of it is recognizing the infrastructure investment that's required in order to uh, not thwart nature, but make nature less impactful as those climate change uh, consequences pour on. And most of the world has recognized that, uh, but we pulled out of the out of the climate change accord. Uh, so it's, to me, I, I'm not a politician. I understand, you know, people say things for political reasons, but there's a certain level of concrete leadership that's required uh, when you know that there's a problem developing. And I don't think you can explain it away with a political uh, slogan. You just have to roll up your sleeves and be a leader and, and take it on. And yes, I, I just read that uh, Exxon is pushing carbon tax after 20 years of, uh, of uh, trying to undermine it because business recognizes now that uh, <clears throat> that's going to be necessary as we move into the future. So, look, there's an evolution here. Maybe too many disasters will cause politicians and business people to recognize that something must be done and that we need to invest for the future. I, I, I worry about my grandchildren and the world they're going to live in if we don't start that investment today. And that's, I think, for me, that's kind of the failure of leadership uh, that I see and uh, that I think um, needs to be remedied uh, at the ballot box. Hmm. Well, that was a perfect way to bring it full circle. Uh, I'd like to thank you very much uh, for joining us here. Um, thank you very much to our listeners. Uh, you can find Student Stock Security on the Notre Dame International Security Center's SoundCloud and our website. And until next time. Thank you, Griffin. Thank Appreciate you, it. It's a pleasure. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.